Welcome to My Friends in the North with PR and management consultant Sarah Waddington as she interviews some of the leading lights in the north of England about their work, the economy, communications and what makes them tick. Hello and welcome to My Friends in the North. We've a really interesting episode coming up for you today as I chat to author, campaigner and fellow PR consultant Lucy Nicholl. I recently read Lucy's book, A Series of Unfortunate Stereotypes, which names and shames mental health stigmas, and I'm bringing with questions. I've got the book right here, and it's published by charitable mental health publisher Trigger. So welcome to the show, Lucy. Hello, thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. Well, loads of questions. Let's get started. This book is a really frank account of your life and the mental health problems that you've experienced. Mm. Tell me about how the concept of the book came about and what outcomes that you hope it will achieve because that's quite a big thing to do right and to be so open and lay yourself so vulnerable yes so probably I think that was about 2016 I started writing that and prior to that I hadn't really done any blogging or you know and I'd I'd spoken to friends and family about anxiety but I'd never even really thought about it as being a mental health problem as such Um, anyway I started blogging about it and then ended up I was asked to write for Sarah Millican's Standard Issue magazine. Amazing right? Yeah and um, so and it was great because I was able to be quite creative and humorous with it because that was the style of the magazine and I started thinking about you know the idea of anxiety and how people see it and what sprung to mind was that character Aunt Josephine from Lemony Snicket. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, and she's scared of everything. She was yeah. scared of leeches and estate agents and all random things. And I thought that is so not me. I cannot relate to that. But that's the first thing that sprung to mind for me as an anxious betrayal. So this piece that I wrote, I ended up calling it a series of unfortunate stereotypes and talking about how people with anxiety are not weak. They're not feeble, people terrified of everything. They have an anxiety disorder. And that was something that I obviously was living with. And I kind of just wanted to dispel the myths. And then as I was blogging more and more, which I couldn't stop doing, I realized that I had loads to say on the subject. And I think possibly because I work in PR and and media, the whole stigma, stereotype, media portrayal angle really Stuck, stuck with, with me you. yeah yeah and so and you were seeing it day in day out and I guess that resonated and you wanted to deal with it yeah absolutely absolutely because it does feel a bit personal when you think you know uh, yeah that, like you don't see yourself anywhere else because actually you're living with something but you don't see anybody that you can be comfortable with in terms of how you're being represented I guess that's yeah difficult. yeah yeah and I think that if you if you think about those kinds of I mean uh, Lemony Snicket's a, a, a quite an extreme example but um, if you do think about how anxiety is thought of and portrayed it is of this kind of nervy frail idea of a person and I remember when I first started talking about my experience of anxiety and um, I went on Radio Newcastle and Alfie Jerry actually love Alfie. oh I love Alfie I love Alfie to bits. <laughs> he actually said to me well I couldn't believe it when I heard you were coming on our show to talk about anxiety because we've worked with you in a PR yeah. capacity for years and you always seem so confident and bubbly and I said well I guess I am mainly but you know this is a completely different thing this is yeah. me having a complete meltdown because I think I've locked the cat in the dishwasher or something you know yeah. this is me 
getting off a bus because I think it's going to And those two things can work in parallel, right? Mm, you know, you absolutely. can actually be functioning at work but also be having a meltdown about something that really matters to you that has taken over in terms of anxiety. Yeah, let's, yeah. Let's come back to that. Um, there's often a lot of media shaming around mental health. And in the book, you talk about the media attacking those experiencing and trying to deal with issues. It's like having a pop at someone for wearing a cast over a broken leg. And I love that quote. <laughs> um, and I really believe that as society, we do have to move past this idea that for example, those with depression should just man up and snap out of it. So I know you've taken Piers Morgan to task on this. Yes. Tell us what happened. (laughs) So because I speak out a lot about mental health, I'm part of the sort of mental health community on Twitter, very active. Lots of us are very outspoken. And a, a young campaigner got in touch with me with a link to Good Morning Britain. And there was somebody on talking about suicide and suicide rates and I think they were especially talking about young people Mm. and Piers went on this rant as he does but this rant about how kids need to toughen up and we're all talking about mental health these days and it's obviously not helping if the suicide you know it was just absolutely ridiculous. Piers at his best as ever. Oh yeah absolutely and I felt really angry about it and 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 indeed lots of us did I mean I, I Oh, I'm name dropping here, but I'm friends with Denise Welch and she and Piers have gone head to head so many times. Yeah. And I was getting texts from her saying, have you seen what he said about me now? So she was standing up to him and, and she was getting a load of grief. I was told to man up love, I think was his response to me. Campaigner Johnny Benjamin, he was getting a lot of grief. But we all kind of stood up to it and to what he was saying there's a strength in the collective isn't there because I think you can be very very vulnerable as an individual and he's very good at taking an individual apart and and using his influence and power to to do that but not not so much when a few people come back at him well that's the thing and that's why you know people say oh you're never going to change his opinion why bother and the reason being in my eyes is because he's got what five six million followers and You've got to challenge things, right? Yeah, I, I'm a big believer yeah. in what I call of holding the line in terms of if you see something that you believe is right, don't stay quiet if if someone is being either bullied or mm. you know isolated. I, I really strongly believe that you need to hold the line. You go out and you show solidarity. Yeah, it, it, it's just mm. that you know within all the comments, if you think about a tweet that Piers might put out. Um, right, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll not change his opinion, you know, I, I just won't. But within all of those responses, there'll be loads of people and lots of Piers fans who are kind of jumping on what he's saying and probably, you know, sometimes they're saying it in much more aggressive ways yeah, as well. Keyboard warriors, yeah. Yeah. And then so you imagine out of the five, six million people that follow Piers Morgan on Twitter, there are going to be people who have experienced a mental health problem and not been able to speak out yet. And if all they can see is this echo of what he's saying and without... And vitriol. Yeah. Yeah, they need without to know they're not challenge. alone and there is support out there. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, so, good for you. Yeah. <laughs> good. Um, in the book, you talk about being a self-confessed hypochondriac. And there's a great story in there where you ended up in A&E with a rash for suspected meningitis when in fact it was an innocent rash. And that's just one of several similar scenarios. Now, you don't take that lightly. You know, you recognise what that means. Um, But tell us about that. Do you still live with that? Does that still manifest itself? I'm doing really well at the minute, actually. Um, Not help for my me coughing before this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I've, I think for a while now, I mean, I've been on antidepressants for 
four or five years now, I think. And they do help me. I know they don't help everybody, but I use a mix of um, medication. I've had lots of different therapists over the years. Um, I'm trying to practice a bit of self-care, although I do drink far too much caffeine. Diet Coke's my thing. But um, I have noticed recently, and I think this is probably from learning over the years and all the CBT and everything I've had, Cognitive behavioural therapy, for those who don't know the jargon. Sorry, yes. <laughs> I have I have noticed that I don't react in a panicked way anymore. So actually on Friday was the first time that I'd had an all-over hair dye put on my head because for some reason I got it into my head that I was going to have an anaphylactic shock if I did that. And right. I was going to my hairdressers. She's a good friend of mine, Sam, and she really puts up with a lot from me because... <laughs> She used to, when I I used to dye my hair all over brown, dark brown, and she used to have to do it with foils. So it would take hours because I wouldn't want it to touch my scalp. The actual scalp, yeah. And then I just realised that I was open to the idea of just having my hair dyed and I went and sat and had it done and felt absolutely fine. I still had a couple of niggles, but what was different was that it didn't impact my life. So it didn't stop me from doing my hair. It didn't keep me awake at night. It didn't forced me to take antihistamines as a precaution um I wasn't getting up checking that my throat hadn't swelled up that's just one example but I think it shows that even though some of those thoughts are still there I've learned over the years through therapy and and you know all the different areas of support and just learning myself um how to kind of think about situations and it's the you know what is the risk. Well, it's so tiny. people might not realise that, that people with an anxiety disorder that that's the kind of thing that you live with in terms of every what seems well every small decision as far as maybe the mm. that most of us would consider. So, like for example, I would completely take for granted booking booking a hair appointment and going in and getting that done. It wouldn't give me. I wouldn't yeah. even spend two minutes thinking about it. But for people out there who don't understand, it just shows you how very simple triggers could actually send you into quite a large-scale yeah. um, panic, I guess, in terms yeah. of all those different things, and actually interfere with your day-to-day life quite considerably. So if you're getting up in the night because of it, that's not a small thing, right? No, no. And, yeah, it could be anything from... Um, I remember when my my husband's an actor and he was on at the National Theatre. God, I sound like such a name-dropper. <laughs> well, come back PR, PR isn't it? It's yeah. PR, we can do that. But he... Uh, he got me a free ticket, you know, friends and family free ticket, because I think they were about 50 quid, but it wasn't on an end, an aisle seat. It was sat in the middle. And I right can... in the middle, so you could see him perfectly. And I should say, yeah. um, Lucy's husband is Northeast actor Chris Connell, who many of you will know from the Pittman Painters. Yes, and um, that was the show, actually. That was the show, that and then the you show. didn't go and sit in the middle because you couldn't do that, which I... shows you, actually, the extent, because you want to be there to support him, you yeah. know, the man you love. But I, I I did go, but I spent 50 quid on a ticket. To get to the end, so you had a way to escape if, yes. you, if you felt panicky. Yeah, okay. yeah, whereas he thought he was getting me a brilliant seat. And I've done, I've done it with buses. There are certain buses that I've not felt comfortable getting on, and I couldn't tell you why. Um, and, and this is going back 20 years. I couldn't tell you why, but the double-deckers, I didn't want to get on, but the little buses I would get on, and I don't know why. But now, um, I've I've had the occasional panic attack over recent years, but nothing much. So I I think, you know, whilst I'll always have some anxious thoughts and patterns of thinking... You're um, in control of it. Yeah. Which is great. Yeah. 
Right, you left college with a D in arts, an E in English, <laughs> and an E in law. Now, did yeah. you feel, I've asked this a couple of times actually in the previous episodes, did you feel supported in your career choices? And what led you to the career in journalism, which you've mentioned, um, included writing for Sarah Milken's standard issue publication, and of course you're now in, in public relations like me. How, yes. did, how did you get here? Um, <laughs> oh, by accident. So, yeah, I didn't take my A-level seriously at all. Before my law A-level exam, I remember sitting blurry-eyed at my friend's party at 5am and then rocking up to my law exam so there's no wonder I got an E in it um but I just kind of drifted and I was getting jobs doing um glass collecting and you know just part-time admin jobs and things and then I was working in recruitment and it was an owner-managed company I was only about 1920 so I was working closely with the managing director, the owner, um, and he was quite open to hearing ideas about the company. And I realised that I had a thing for marketing. I didn't probably... Natural flair. Yeah, Yeah. I probably didn't even know or had ever considered marketing. But I enrolled on a CIM course, which did in my own time, and then ended up working as a press officer in theatre when I was about 22, I think. And then, so it was actually PR first. Yeah, um, and you've developed that since. And then, yeah, and then it was it was actually kind of campaigning and talking more about mental health that started my writing. And so, yeah, I started with Standard Issue, which, my God, was a great place to start because I yeah. love the Standard Issue community. But, yeah, and then ended up writing for Metro and HuffPost. And, um... and let's go to the big one. So one of your career highlights has been working with the Coronation Street team on its portrayal of mental health. And if I'm right, you advised on Carla Connor's psychotic episode to ensure that was accurate. Yes. Is that right? Yes, yeah. Um, so I think because I had this background of sort of PR and I'd, I'd been writing, I had a real interest in mental health stigma and had the kind of the arts background as well, so I was used to reading scripts and things. I was approached by one of the guys at mine, Jenny, who kind of, I think she set up the media advisory desk because she had a background in Which is fantastic, journalism. and we'll come back to actually how things are portrayed in the media, but yeah. really an initiative, right, to try and influence scripts and what's actually the representation we see on screen, to go back to your earlier point about not having anybody that you felt yeah. represented you. It, it's, such a, it's such a big deal because you see these characters, and especially in soaps, they're long-running, you get to know characters, and let's be honest, it does have an impact on your life. You know, I, I used to be a bit obsessed with EastEnders and Corrie, if I'm <laughs> honest. But um, so so what the so I started freelancing for Mind as a as a script advisor, and I still do that. I've got uh, another one to look at on the train to Manchester tomorrow. But the the Carla Connor storyline was fascinating. So I worked on that right from the beginning. It was about six seven months work before it was on the screen. And they're absolutely brilliant because they would start, they'd come to us and say, we've got this idea, we want to explore psychosis, this is the character. And when they said Carla, I just said, that is brilliant. I I was just (laughs) like, this is mine. (laughs) This is great. Well, I love the character of Carla, but I just think also... Because she's a strong character, right? So she's one of those people, most people go, well, she can deal with anything. Yeah, absolutely. She's a strong character, but she's a well-loved character, I think. And... um, she, people have got to know her so she's not this character that's coming in with a mental health problem we know Carla the character we know the personality because she's been on the screen on the cobbles for years and I think what was really interesting with psychosis there's a lot of stigma around psychosis and some people 
do associate it with violence, which is so far removed from the reality because people with psychosis are far more likely to be vulnerable than violent. And I think what was interesting about Carla's portrayal is you've got this very strong, assertive woman who, when she experiences psychosis, becomes incredibly vulnerable. And I feel that's one of the more accurate portrayals of psychosis that I've ever seen I, I just thought they did a brilliant job and it's great because at the end of the episode they signpost so yeah. actually you get to understand things and you might think oh, I recognise it either in myself or someone that I know and love and then you've got obviously signposted to, to the help and guidance that you, you need which yeah. is brilliant really um, I think we both agree that broadcast and print media we, we mentioned peers but um, <laughs> still have a long way to go to better represent mental health so that those who are experiencing issues are always seen as psychos or troubled minds mm. I think that can happen a lot but seen as family members and friends who are either creative or quite gentle or, you know, that it's something that's happening to them, it's not affecting anybody else. But news reporting aside, do you think programmes like Love Island are useful for highlighting issues? So at the moment, obviously, they're being taken to task for things like gaslighting. Yeah. Or are they part of the problem? I think Love Island brings a whole different set of yeah, problems, I'm, I'm to not be a huge, honest. I'm not a huge fan, admittedly. But. I, I became a bit addicted to it last year, to be honest, but the whole time I was watching it, I, I was just thinking, I really shouldn't be watching this. It, you know, and, and there was the whole gaslighting conversation last year as well, and um, I think that I think there's a couple of things to consider. First of all, in terms of our expectations as to who we are in body image, Love Island to oh, me. Oh, dear me, yeah, yeah, let's not even... No. <laughs> let's not start on that one, because I could speak for that for another two hours. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, can you imagine going into any sort of university or college lecture hall, seeing a group of young people, and then all looking like that? I mean, it's just ridiculous. Yeah. And who wears high heels when they're by the pool? Like, in a bikini, exactly. In a, like, oh, just, actually, I'm not a good fan of string bikinis. It's <laughs> not comfortable, people. No. <laughs> um, but I think reality TV. So I, I wrote recently about the Jeremy Carl show. And, yeah. Um, that so was, obviously that's now come off TV. You have to yeah. suicide from somebody who appeared on the show. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's shocking. And I, and I think that there is something around protecting the people who participate in the show. So it's not only how it affects viewers at home, but also how it affects those taking part. And I think that what we can't do is say that all reality TV shows are bad, because if you look at um, Naked Beach, for example, I don't know if you've seen yes, that. Yes, I've seen that. And That's so, very much about celebrating the human body, though, isn't it? And its quirks and its differences. Yes. So not an ideal that everybody should aspire to. That's about just embracing who you are. So very Absolutely. different, positively like mental affirmation really yeah if that's your bag I'm yeah. not sure you could ever convince me to do that but <laughs> <laughs> I know I don't know if I could do it but I sat and watched the first one and it's Natasha Devon um who's involved in that show who I just think is amazing who is another person who lives with an anxiety disorder and she's I mean she's a formidable force and great role model mental health campaigning and she's just amazing um but that show is is really very much about putting the yes it's it it's it's for entertainment but it's for entertainment in terms of the audience the viewers at home will hopefully get something really positive from it yeah and those people taking part are leaving the show with positivity and like you say embracing who they are so it's not about reality tv shows generally yeah. i think i think really we've just got to consider what are their aims and are they 
morally sound or not. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm with you on that. <laughs> now, we're running out of time and I desperately want to get a couple of questions across, so we'll have to keep this speedy. But I love the fact you've got a stepson called Sam. And in the book, you talk about that nagging feeling that comes with trying to be the perfect stepmom. Now, I have a blended, blended family of five, mm. including two of my own. And it really resonates. I and mean, we're having grumbles today about social media, you know, and getting that right between who posts what. And how do you deal with it? And I'm going to add to that another question I had is that you obviously have a lovely, um, inclusive relationship at your house. So you must, as part of that answer, tell me about your, you know, Sam's coming out story. Because we had a chat before the podcast recording yeah. and it's just so lovely. It's <laughs> yeah, it was, um, I'm so gutted I, I missed it because I was tucked up in bed because I'm such a bore these days. But um, my husband, Chris, was sat downstairs with Sam and... Um, this is how they relayed it to me. Um, Sam was a bit kind of fidgety and then saying, um, Dad, uh, would you be angry if I brought a boyfriend home without telling you first? And Chris just said, well, yeah, I would, son, because I wouldn't have had a chance to hoover. And I just thought, <laughs> it's funny because it's I can so hear him saying that as well because yeah. he always had this obsession about hoovering the house before people came round. I don't know why. Um, He's been well brought up, that <laughs> Yeah, it was just like... Just so yeah, natural, which so is as it should be. And and kids should be able to talk to their parents, right? Absolutely. And why were you so nervy about, you know, being a stepmom? Because clearly you care and you're invested. Yeah, I think I did a lot of growing up when I first met Sam. So I've, I've been a step-parent to Sam since he was seven, eight years old. And I, I, I struggled with it. I think when I look back, I think he was probably the more mature out of... Out of both of us, I struggled with you know feelings of jealousy, which is so immature for the I attention of my partner. I think and, it's natural, and I think yeah. that's the bits that people need to talk about because actually it's a natural part of any relationship, particularly when you're trying to find your way. Yeah, yeah. I'm uh, fascinated uh, by it. I've got a great book because I'm trying to get oh, beyond it. Uh-huh. It's so good, and it's about this whole kind of step coupling, as they call it, mm. uh, and how you you know kind of deal with those kind of things that people try not to talk about but really should <laughs> yeah and I think kind of I do try in the book to sort of say you know yes I had good intentions but I got it wrong so many times but I also got it right as well I remember getting quite upset and saying to Chris when I look back there were so many things I would change about um you know the, the relationship with Sam that I've had but he said all parents think well that. I was about to say the same thing do you know what though you don't get a manual yeah and if, and if you've inherited a child you know what I mean it's, it's yeah. different again you just have to find your way and certainly that's what I'm doing so good on you yeah <laughs> let's finish on a lovely thing that you're working on right now so here at NGI Solutions where we're sat today you're working with the Newcastle United Foundation on a campaign called Be a Game Changer and this uses the power of football to talk about mental health. So what's this all about and how can people find out more? Yeah, this is absolutely brilliant. So Newcastle United Foundation had some funding to run a campaign around mental health targeted specifically at Newcastle United fans, but also they're targeting men over the age of 40. And the reason for that is, I don't know the figure for today, but certainly in 2017, we had the highest rate of suicide mm. here, which is obviously devastating. And they, knowing that they've got the, the power of, you know, football, which brings people together and it can be very tribal, they wanted to use that to get the message out there about the fact that it's okay to talk about mental health. 
if you do experience mental health problems, these are some of the places you can go to for support and just removing the stigma and signposting, basically. So um, they brought us on board as NGI Solutions to help them launch the campaign. So we've done a lot of work around sort of influencer engagement, social media. Um, We've done some pieces in the national press. So we've had either their staff or their participants writing like for Huff Post, we've had them in the eye and the independent and we've done a lot of stuff with kind of local and regional podcast. And what's been so lovely is that at the very start of the campaign we had people sharing their case studies who said, um, I really want to take part in this but I don't want to put my name to it. One person in particular and I'm going to say his name because he's out there on Twitter now doing this. He's called Les. So he started saying he wasn't too keen on putting his name out there. Then he started tweeting really openly about it. Now he's vlogging. This is amazing. It's it's amazing. He's got a YouTube channel and it's all about barbecuing and mental health. So he's bringing together two things Lovely. he's passionate Can, about. And that's the way to go, isn't it? It's that's just how I'll keep it sustainable. Yeah. If you want to find out more about that, the hashtag is be a game changer. So do look it up. Lucy, thank you for a brilliant interview and for opening up about the book, your campaigning and the home life, because I know that that's, I can be very nosy where that's concerned. <laughs> um, if you'd like to keep up to date with what Lucy's up to, you can connect with her on Twitter at Lucy E. Nickel, and you can buy a series of unfortunate stereotypes via Amazon, Trigger or Waterstones. So we're now well into the first series of My Friends in the North, but if you or a client would like to be involved, do drop me a line at sarah at astute.work. But bye for now and see you next time. Thank you for listening to My Friends in the North with Sarah Waddington. You can find Sarah on Twitter at Mrs. Underscore Wads or get involved with the podcast by emailing Sarah at astute.work. See you next time. Mm-hmm.